I've basically been unemployable my whole life. You know, like I've always been very motivated by freedom and independence. And, you know, I will work super, super hard for something that I believe in, for something that I have ownership over. But if I'm not motivated, um, you know, then, you know, I'm basically like the worst possible employee you could imagine. And so that's a double edged sword, of course. And it, it, you know, it's all about like figuring out, okay, what am I good at? What am I not good at? Um, You know, I've always liked this definition of an entrepreneur that says an entrepreneur is someone who will work 24 hours a day for themselves to avoid working one hour a day for someone else. You are listening to Louder Than Words, the podcast inspiring creatives of all types by giving you a glimpse into the lives and creative process of the most remarkable people you know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to Louder Than Words, where we've been providing people like you a look into the lives of some of the most innovative entrepreneurs, writers, designers, creators, um, anybody we can find to inspire all of us to do a little bit better in our in our day jobs. My name is John Benini. I'm a conversion copywriter, and I have a website where I post about creating copy that drives action from headlines to button text to emails, landing pages. So you can come find me and connect at johnbenini.co. Or, of course, on Twitter, at Benini84. But more importantly, today, I'm hanging out with Chris Gillibo, author of The Art of Nonconformity, The New York Times bestsellers, The $100 Startup, which has sold more than 300,000 copies worldwide, and more recently, The Happiness of Pursuit. Over the past 10 years, he's also visited every single country in the world. Uh, So obviously, he speaks all over the world. Some of his more recent speaking gigs have included stops at places like Google, Facebook, Evernote, South by Southwest. Today, though, he's hanging out speaking with us. So, Chris, I couldn't be more excited to have you here, man. How's it going? Hey, John. I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. And and I've I've often wondered this. um, Where does one vacation after visiting (laughs) every single country in the world? You know, it's, uh, it's tough. I don't relax so much. You know, uh, uh, Dean Carnassus is this guy who runs ultra marathons and does a bunch of crazy stuff. And he has this quote that I, I stole from him, and it's uh, relaxing stresses me out. So uh, <laughs> I, I tend to enjoy doing my stuff. I'm fortunate to have a great community. I'm fortunate to be able to do work that I love. You know, you were very kind to mention a few things there. So I'm really focused on that. Yeah. And I mean, you've done something in traveling to every country in the world that I would say probably 95% of people never have. We all want to do that, right? But we never get the chance to. So at such a, you know, young age and in such a short period of time, you know, 10 years isn't that long to do that. What, um, you know, what inspired this journey? Because that's not, that's not a casual endeavor doing that <laughs> in just 10 years. So what sort of inspired this whole thing? Yeah, I was going to say it felt like a long time, you know, at the time, uh, maybe 10 years is relatively short, but it was kind of an all consuming thing, you know, for, for, you know, much of my life. And I guess I didn't start, uh, you know, not having been anywhere. It's not like I had never left the United States and then said, okay, I want to leave and go to every country in the world. You know, I kind of came to it organically, naturally, just as I traveled, um, I spent four years kind of right out of college, uh, as a volunteer in West Africa, um, working for this aid agency there. And so I kind of traveled in some more difficult, challenging countries for a while. I really enjoyed that. Like I felt like I was kind of coming alive as I would go to different cultures and and try to figure things out. And then I started traveling in Europe a bit and then in Asia. So it's kind of after I had been to maybe 30 or 40 countries that I started thinking about bigger goals. And I was always a goal setter. I liked you know making lists. Every day I'd have my to-do list 
You know, I, I like starting entrepreneurial ventures and projects. So I was always kind of oriented towards creative work and creative things. And so that's when it was like, all right, let's have a goal. And my first goal was to go to 100 countries. And I thought, you know, there's 193 countries in the world. Well, first there was 192 and one got added later, but long story, 192 or 193 countries in the world. If I could go to half of them, you know, sometime in my lifetime, then that would be great. That would be awesome, like big goal. And so I started working toward that. But then the more I worked toward it, like I realized it was actually a very feasible and achievable goal to do half, because if you're doing half of something, you could kind of pick and choose, you know, what's easy. You can go to like what's comfortable. If you get stuck somewhere, if you have a visa problem, you just go somewhere else. And so as I got closer to the halfway point, that's when I thought, like, let's make it a big challenge. Let's like go all out, try to hit every country in the world. And then I wanted to have a deadline as well, because I thought, you know, kind of the same thing about the halfway thing. If I just say I'm going to do this at one point in my life then I might get stuck and I might just kind of put it off. I might defer that dream. And so I said, okay, 35th birthday, that's the goal. And that's what I worked on for 10 years. That's some serious discipline. So obviously this, this is a costly endeavor too. And one that doesn't, mm. but also at the same time, one that doesn't really lend itself to having a traditional nine to five job because <laughs> sure. who, you know, what boss is flexible enough to, yeah, yeah. You can travel to every country in the world. Right. Um, so talk about the logistics. Like how did you actually make this work? Yeah, yeah, you know, great question. I mean, I, I, so a couple of different things we could say. Like, I, I've basically been unemployable my whole life. You know, like I've always been very motivated by freedom and independence. And you know, I will work super, super hard for something that I believe in, for something that I have ownership over. But if I'm not motivated, um, you know, then you know, I'm basically like the worst possible employee you could imagine. And so that's a double-edged sword, of course. And it, it you know, it's all about like figuring out, okay, what am I good at? What am I not good at? Um, you know, I, I've always liked this definition of an entrepreneur that says an entrepreneur is someone who will work 24 hours a day for themselves to avoid working one hour a day for someone else. And that was, that was me like for a long time. I'm like, what can I do? You know? So I started, um, you know, at the age of 19, uh, selling stuff on eBay. You know, this is like going back 20 years almost now, um, a brand new website, eBay.com had just launched and there were these auctions and I could go and buy things and then resell them. And, you know, I made $20 an hour or something, which was a huge amount of money, you know, when I was 19 or 20. And uh, from there, I just learned about a lot of different stuff. I started building websites. I learned about online advertising. I learned about copywriting. I learned about all these little skills and kind of cobbled this, you know, identity together um, over the course of a decade, you know, while I was pursuing the quest. And then you mentioned cost in the beginning. So one of the reasons why I decided to go for it was I actually realized that the financial cost of doing this, while it was significant, it wasn't enormous. You know, like uh, I, after I'd been to like 30 countries, that's when I started thinking about that first goal of 100 countries. I kind of did the math and I was like, it's going to cost me about $30,000, you know, to go to the rest of my, my first 100 countries. And $30,000, like, again, it's not small money, but we're talking about something that I'm going to spend over a number of years. I kind of saw it as an investment in myself. I saw this as something that I was willing to like, you know, I want to exchange. I'm going to get greater value out of this than I am out of that money. So I guess I was, I guess I just kind of saw like, okay, this is worth it, you know, to me. And I'm going to choose to not own a car. I'm going to choose to rent instead of owning a home or whatever, whatever kind of choices I had to make. You know, I'm going to stay out of debt so I can do this. Um, I think the greater costs were not financial. The greater costs were just like the, the focus and the investment in time and, the, you know, the need to be traveling 100 days a year. That was probably a greater cost. I love that line. I, I want to put a, a sticky note in my wallet that says, is the, is the value of this experience greater than the cost of this money? Like, cause that, I feel like that's a great barometer for, mm. you know, spe even spending money on anything really. Sure. Um, you know, so at the time, you know, so just a brief example at the time, like, uh, you know, my friends back at home, I was still in, in West Africa and just coming, coming off that experience. 
you know, my friends at home are buying vehicles, like cars and trucks that cost $30,000. And nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's cool. Like, if you value that, like, go for it. But for me at that time in my life, I was just like $30,000. And I, I wrote a blog post about this. It was one of the first posts on my blog. It was like 100 countries are an SUV. You know, for me, like, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to value those experiences of, of doing that. So I'm going to choose 100 countries. Yeah. And you mentioned somewhere in there too, like, and this is a common trait among so many entrepreneurs is like, you know, you were doing things, you know, you would rather work a, a 24 hours for yourself and one hour for someone else. So you were doing things at a very young age. It seems like a really common thing. So, but I mean, growing up, did you ever have like those crappy jobs in high school, those, those late teenage years where you're washing dishes? Did you ever have sort of those kind of jobs or did you always do things for yourself? Yeah. Okay. No, it's a great, great way to go back because I, I tend to say like I'm self-employed for life, never had a real job, but it is, it is technically true that I had some of those crappy jobs. Uh, I think when I was 14, you know, my first job was uh, washing dishes, exactly that um, at a restaurant. And I think like, I couldn't really tell what was going on at the age of 14, but I think the restaurant was kind of like um, doing some money laundering or doing some drugs or something like there's something that wasn't quite right at the restaurant, but I didn't really know because I was just there to wash the dishes. So I did that for a while. Then all of a sudden, the, you know, the restaurant shut down with no notice. You know, I think there was a raid or something. And then, uh, you know, a couple of years later, I delivered pizza for a while. I, I enjoyed like, you know, kind of roaming around in my vehicle and like, you know, taking breaks whenever I wanted. This is like the years before smartphones and, and tracking and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I think these days, if you deliver pizza, your boss can probably like see where you are at any given time. But, you know, then it wasn't like that. So I had some crappy jobs like that. And then maybe the last one. I was living in Memphis, Tennessee, and that was at age 19 when I started the eBay business. And I was working in the middle of the night uh, for FedEx, and I was loading boxes. And it was like a four-hour like graveyard shift. And so it was pretty tough work, you know, and in, at the worst possible hours. I was going to school in the morning, so I'd work until like 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'd have class at 9, so really limited time to sleep. And then when I started selling on eBay, you know, it was like, okay, I'm making $8 an hour in the middle of the night you know, uh, carrying boxes, probably going to hurt my back. Like I saw a lot of my coworkers like get injured or whatever. Uh, or, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing and I'm making like, you know, $20 an hour and it can only get better, you know, probably from here. And even if it doesn't get better, like this is a great life because I'm setting my schedule, you know, I have flexibility. So I, I was addicted to that just as I was addicted to travel. That's enough to make anybody go, you know, the self-employed route. Yeah. Um, so, so getting back to, you know, your traveling, uh, you know, the lessons that you took from this journey, you know, I'm not sure maybe if you thought this at the time, you know, this was sort of like a personal quest for you and, and growth. And, and part of what, you know, came from that, as you were saying, this investment in yourself was the lessons that you took from all the people that you met on this journey. And, and, mm -hmm. and this journey sort of inspired your newest book, The Happiness of Pursuit, correct? Yeah, that's right. And I, I didn't want to write about just my own journey, you know, because at a, at a certain point, I feel like, you know, that self-reflection can be okay, but it can also just be, I don't know, a little bit random or something. And so I wanted the, the, the latest book, um, and maybe this is what you're going to ask, but it's actually not so much about my own journey. Like I use my journey as a framing device, but mostly I'm talking about quests in general. And so I'm talking about lots of other people who've also pursued a quest and what they learned in the process and what they sacrificed and what they gained in return. Yeah, it's great. I, I read it early on when it first came out, and it is, it's basically crowdsourced inspiration. You know, it's all these <laughs> stories from different people. So yeah, can you tell us more about, you know, obviously this came from your travels, but can you tell us more about like how that project came about and what inspired it? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm happy to crowdsource inspiration. I like that. <laughs> I like that phrase. I'm happy to say that I, I steal and crowdsource and borrow and whatever I can, you know, to get a desired result. So yeah, so, you know, Wanted to go out just like I had a previous book, The $100 Startup, and that book was essentially telling the story of, of self-employment um, through the lens of people who are not doing a traditional like Silicon Valley style startup 
because I felt that there was a lot of there's a lot of resources kind of devoted to that, and that's great. But lots of people aren't doing it that way. They're just kind of out there on their own, and they're 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 pursuing this project of freedom and independence. They're building a small business based on something that they're good at, but they never went to business school. They don't raise capital. They don't do any of that kind of stuff. So that was the whole goal with Hundred Dollar Startup is to tell those people stories. And then with with Happiness of Pursuit and this the story of Quest, it was okay. Here's my quest, but there's all these other people who have also chosen to like you know, focus their lives and orient this major, major portion of their lives towards something that they believe in. And so the, the process is, was essentially one of curation, one of going out and saying, okay, who are all these people? And I want to make sure it's really diverse, you know, so I've got the story of like a young guy who's trying to be a real life James Bond, you know, I've got the story of, of a woman who spent 30 years like through midlife um, trying to see more birds than anyone else ever had in history. And she ended up like breaking the Guinness world record, which had only previously been held by men. Uh, there was a, a man who ran a hundred marathons in a single year. Um, you know, there was a guy who took a vow of silence for 17 years. Um, and there's all kinds of stuff like that, but there's also some relatable things like the woman in Oklahoma, uh, who decided to cook a meal from every country in the world. So she wasn't able to travel to every country in the world like I was, but she chose to like put her culinary arts degree to good use. Um, and just as her daughter was born and starting to eat solid food, she decided to make a meal from every country in the world. So she talked about what she learned through that and how it kind of changed her family. And now she has a whole global community that came out of it. I loved that story. It was like um, introducing culture too to her family yeah. um, without, you know, without obviously having to travel. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's funny because most of your work sort of centers centers around this theme this of creating freedom of reinventing mm. the way that you work and the way that you live and um you know i never heard my grandparents or parents talk like this for some reason mm. it is something that seems generational interesting and um and i, I kind of wanted to get your opinion like why do you think this has become so widely accepted over the past yeah it'd be even hard to to, to quantify right right decade or so because like i said it seems like um, my parents' generation and their yeah. parents' generation was more, um, you didn't, they didn't really talk like, you know, we, you have to love what you do and, you know, believe in what you're doing. It was more, mm. it was more of a responsibility. So wh what yeah. do you, you know, wh what do you, what do you credit this, this sort of, you know, change, um, taking place? Like wh why is this such a big thing now for people in, uh, in the workforce? I don't know if it's entirely generational. I, I agree that there's definitely been a shift, you know? But I think maybe the word the, the word perceived is important because maybe it's a shift in time. You know, I hear from lots of people who are retired or close to retirement and and they're using the same kind of language like they want meaning and purpose in their work. You know, I don't think it's just like a this is what millennials want. Millennials want freedom and purpose. I, I really feel like maybe what's happened. You know, I mean, there could be some generational differences for sure, like on aggregate. But I think what's happened is that more and more people of, of all different ages and backgrounds are just kind of starting to see that there are a lot more opportunities. And so maybe, you know, what was perceived or maybe what was the reality, like in our grandparents' generation or another generation before ours, was that there weren't as many opportunities. You know, there, there wasn't the Internet. And like you hate to credit everything to the Internet. Right. But I also think it's true that, you know, the, the opportunity that we have to connect with people on a global basis, even like through this medium, like consider this this conversation, like we're having this conversation over Skype now. Like and now when we say Skype, everybody knows what that is. But. You know, that did, Skype didn't exist, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and certainly not previous generations. And then people who listen to it, you know, they're downloading this, you know, through their iTunes or whatever format they use, and they can listen to it anywhere. So there's all these changes that have been made in terms of social networks, in terms of like being able to build a website and e-commerce and, 
and possibilities and the, the, the exchange of information is so much more free. So I do think that has a lot to do with it. And, and anyone, I think, can grasp onto that. You know, any, no one has, a, has an age advantage or some other demographic advantage to this, which is really great, right? Because, you know, I don't, I don't want to say it's a meritocracy because certainly there's, you know, various privilege factors, but it is the kind of thing where, you know, I would say anybody who's listening to this, you know, if you haven't already jumped, you know, on board with it, like you, you can in some way, like everybody can create more freedom for themselves, whether they want to be a full-time entrepreneur, whether they just want to have like a side hustle, they have some kind of side project, or whether they just want to get their the best possible job, you know, they want to have their dream job. That's cool too. I feel like freedom is just much more of a prevalent value in our culture, like across generations now. What do you think? Yeah, you can just, you can just buy like a WordPress template now or, or, or get on Squarespace, start a blog you know, do stuff like you said, like we're doing today, you know, we've had no prior engagement really before this, um, you know, besides me reading your books, but just the fact that we can connect this easily and, you know, have a conversation like you just said, or, or start a a blog on WordPress and, you know, find a niche audience that, you know, Mm -hmm. has an interest that you can write about. I know, I know somebody in marketing that she actually left her job in marketing because she started a blog and it blew up and she started making money from it. She's like, Mm -hmm. I, this, this is a passion of mine. I have to leave. It was a blog about quinoa that's and, great that's a great story and quinoa she, <laughs> because there's people out there who care about quinoa i mean actually i like quinoa but i don't know if i'd read a whole blog about it yeah. but the whole point is like yeah that's, that's a great example of like there's a market exactly. like there's a there's a passionate community and like presumably she's maybe i don't know what she's doing like offering recipes or whatever like but something that benefits people and that's the point is like she's found something that, that she's good at that she has knowledge knowledge of and other people care about it and therefore she's created this convergence and now she quit her job so that's amazing yeah and something that would have been Basically impossible 15, 20 years ago. So it's, yeah. I didn't it even is, know what quinoa was 15 years ago, yeah. but that's another story. <laughs> I didn't even know what it was probably 15 months ago. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but um, it, it, it's just funny. But, um, and you're not just the, the great thing about you, though. And I think the reason why your, your books and your work resonate so much is you're not just writing about it, you're living this stuff, you know, like, but still you don't focus on yourself. Like these books that you write are still focused on other people's stories and people you've come across in your travels, but you're living this stuff you've been self-employed your whole professional life and you know you're out there traveling and meeting people so mm-hmm. was there a specific life experience that sort of led you to this life or to embrace this life of a of a non-conformist i guess we'll call it you know i think it's probably a process of of a lot of different experiences i don't think there was like you know one moment in the wilderness or one turning point or something it's like uh i kind of worked toward it you know i, I mean I'm, I'm 37 now i didn't i didn't start the blog I didn't start the blog until I was 30. And, you know, the whole time before that, I had spent these years in West Africa. I had begun this quest. I did a master's degree in international studies, which, you know, in some ways was, I could say was, was mostly useless, but at the same time, like it helped. I got some feedback on my writing. I learned some critical thinking skills. Um, you know, before that I was a high school dropout and I was the, I was the dishwasher, you know, I, I delivered the pizzas. I think all these things kind of, you know, lead us to where we are. I think there's, there's lots of different paths we can take in life. It's not like there's just like this one road or something, but at a certain point, I think, you know, the goal for all of us is to find this, this magic intersection between like, Oh, here's actually what I love to do. And I'm actually pretty good at it. And it actually can be somewhat rewarding. You know, like this is a concept I'm working on in in my next book. It's called joy money flow. It's like, this is what we all want, no matter whether whether you want to work for yourself or someone else or whatever it is retire on the beach like you want to do something that you love to do you want it to be sustainable and you want to do something that you're good at so i think you know there's also an element of luck to it as well like i, I certainly think i've been really fortunate in finding that but i think maybe so there's the fortune you know element but i also think like if you do find it 
there's this great quote by John Irving, the novelist, and I'm going to just totally butcher this, but it's something like, you know, if you're fortunate enough to find, you know, this way of life that you love, you should do everything you can to protect it, you know? And that's what I've tried to live by. It's like, okay, I have this great life. So yeah, of course I'm going to live it. Like, of course I'm going to, you know, live that experience for myself. And I'm going to, you know, be on the road to meet people and do everything I can to support the great community because, you know, I don't know if I deserve it. It just kind of happened. So that's great. Yeah, yeah, really, and and I didn't know that either about high school. Did you ever end up going back to uh, to finish? <laughs> no, I never finished high school. I mean, like I like I said, I went to graduate school. Like I went to I went to college. Like I kind of snuck into community college, and they they never really asked for my transcript. <laughs> and by the time they by the time they figured it out, I was already like three quarters in, I think, and I was doing pretty well. Like I actually liked you know college because I could pick. It was that freedom thing, right? You know, I could pick and choose my classes. Like obviously, there's still a curriculum I had to follow, but I could pick and choose like you know, what that course coursework was and what time I went to class and all that. So I did, I did well in college. Um, but no, I never finished high school. I did, I had one year of high school. I dropped out, uh, on my 16th birthday. Yeah. We had, uh, we had Ryan holiday on this podcast. Not oh, too right, long right. Ago. And, yeah. um, he, he's, he was a college dropout. He, I think he said he dropped out after his sophomore year. And, mm. uh, I loved his analogy. He said uh, the way he looked at it was he was getting off one train and getting on another one that he felt was moving faster and would take him mm. farther. And yeah, that's a great analogy. It's, it's hard to argue with that. So, mm. um, so yeah, and, and it seems like this feeling too, like we just kind of talked about this, this feeling of, of, of creating freedom for ourselves is extremely prevalent in the mm. workplace now and with many entrepreneurs because it's, it's, it's so easy to connect and, and sort of create our own thing and, and the cost is lower. And that's sort of the whole you know, impetus behind the $100 startup. You know, mm. so, so many people seek this freedom and they have ideas and they have aspirations, but so, you know, even a lot that I've come across that I've worked with, they Many people don't execute due to some level of fear, whether it's financial mm-hmm. or whether it's fear of failure. Um, you know, they're they're always hesitant to take that first step. But the one hundred dollar startup is this book, and again, it, it crowdsources all these stories that give you the inspiration that like anybody really can do this, and anyone does do it. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think is the first step for people in making that change? Just from what you've learned in in you know sort of what you put together for the one hundred dollar startup, these people that have these ideas, they want to create freedom for themselves, but they're just mm-hmm. afraid. What's right. the first step in making that change from what you've learned? Yeah, I think the first step is is removing the obstacles or the perceived obstacles. Um, because as you said, costs are so much lower and it's not just the financial costs. It's that I would say risk in general is so much lower. So all of the costs, you know, um, I mean, if we go back to like old school, you know, previous generations, what, what was it like to start a business? Well, you did have to have capital, um, but it's not only capital that you had to have. It's like there's usually this long incubation period, this long waiting period of like, you know, six months, a year, maybe longer to you before you know, like what the response is, you know, to, to your business, um, just because of the nature of retail transactions or whatever it was you were trying to start. But now, you know, to go to your example, like you can, you can start a blog, you can start a WordPress blog for either $0 or maybe, you know, $10 for your domain name. And maybe you spend a little bit on design or something, but the point is it's very, very, very low cost and not just financial, but you could start that and you could have it up, you know, within 30 days and you can have your first product within 30 days. You know, um, a good friend of mine, Nathan Berry, just recently did this 24 hour product challenge, um, which is such a great title. I mean, marketing wise, I love it. I wish I had, I had come up with it myself. Um, but it's just as, as described, he was like in 24 hours, you know, I'm going to make a new product and, and he's going to document the whole thing and like took videos of it and, and everything. So I guess first step is like remove these obstacles, like realize like it is possible, like all these people are doing it. Uh, maybe the first thing you make is not going to be a huge success, but that's fine because, it, you know, it didn't take you that much, didn't cost that much. And what if it is right? Like what if it is a success? Because I actually have lots of stories 
you know, people always focus on failure and they're like, tell us your greatest failure story. And I, like, I actually hear from a lot of people that are like, I created this first thing and it actually worked really well, you know? So you never know. So I would say remove the obstacles, then figure out a way. Okay. What is my product? What is my service? How am I going to get it out there? That's really all I need to have for a business. You know, a business is a product or a service. It's a group of people, you know, willing to pay for it. Even just one person, right. Willing to pay for it. And then a means of getting paid. So the means of getting paid is really simple because everybody has PayPal, right? You can put a PayPal button on your site, you know, in 150 countries. It's not in all 193 countries yet, but, you know, pretty much everybody who's listening can probably do that. Sure. And and I think, uh, you know, in the book, all, all these different entrepreneurs and, and, and business owners and some people who, who, who didn't like that you were calling them a business because they felt right, like they right. were just doing something they loved, <laughs> um, you know, it, they ranged in price. Some of them, you know, they, they said they spent $400 investment on themselves or, or closer to $1,000, whatever it was. The cost yeah. is, is still pretty minimal. But right. from, from the people you talk to and, and some of these stories, like how are people – you know, in your in your experience, compensating for that financial aspect because ideas are cheap, but sometimes the execution is often pretty mm. expensive. Whether it, whether it's a you know a product that needs to be manufactured or whether mm. it's a distribution cost, like how are people compensating for this? I see, I see. Well, there's lots of different kinds of, of businesses, and I you know in in the books I write and on the blog, I try to be kind of diverse and I try to show people like here's a range of things, right? So so there's certainly like businesses in, in the hundred dollars startup that cost more than a hundred dollars to start. You know, I get complaints about that you know once in a while, and I'm like, well, you know, it's kind of a principle here. Like, it's not that every single business is going to cost a hundred dollars. The point is like. <laughs> You know, it's just it's just so much lower. So I guess, you know, it, it depends on what kind of business that you want. You know, like I, I profiled a guy named Tom Ben who's from Santa Cruz, California, but now lives in Seattle. Um, and, and he founded the Tom Ben luggage factory. Um, and he creates these amazing backpacks and messenger bags and laptop bags. And like it's, it's the bag that I used to travel. Um, he has 11 employees now. It's actually like a low multi seven figure business, you know, but this is a manufacturing business. So obviously there is there is more cost there. You know, that's that's what his passion was. That's what he did. Um, a lot of people, though, I would say probably the people that I'm more familiar with, like what I do in my work and what a lot of those stories are, they're people working in the knowledge economy. So they are doing things like, you know, starting a blog about quinoa. You know, they are doing things like creating an online course. They're creating ebooks um, and digital products and membership sites and all of those kinds of things. And, and with that, I mean, the greatest cost is not financial. It's it's whatever you have invested over time to to acquire that knowledge. You know whether it was through your four year degree or whether it was through your ten years of you know working in this particular field or even just like an immersive experience that you've had to learn about something that other people you know care about. So those those are the costs, and you already have that. Like it's it's more of an asset, not a cost. So the question is just how do you then deploy that you know asset in, in a way that you know can then be exchanged you know monetarily as a product or a service. So it doesn't necessarily need to cost a lot. And there's you know many stories in the book and elsewhere of, of people who've created successful businesses from that. Yeah, and I think one of my favorite parts of the book is the fact that just from reading these stories, you kind of learn that, you know, entrepreneurs, this the language that we share, it transcends like mm. cultures, countries, language barriers. Yep. There, there just seems to be this X factor there. Um, did you have, I know, you know, through all your travels from the $100 startup and, and even the happiness pursuit, there's, there's way too many stories, but yeah. do you, do you have one that, that sort of sticks out that when you go speak somewhere, you'd be like, I have to, I have to bring up this story here. Like, is, is there one or two or, or maybe just one that's popped in your head right now? Yeah, and asked you cool. That you just, that you just love sharing. 
Sure, sure. Yeah, so I'm trying to think about your audience and what people would respond to. So I like the the story that we briefly talked about earlier with Sasha Martin, the woman who cooked a meal from every country in the world. Um, so here's a more entrepreneurial entrepreneurial one. Um, I really like the story of Brett Kelly, who is um, this self described geek. He was a software developer um, in, living in California, and he created this ebook called Evernote Essentials. And he had never owned a business before. He had never written a book. He was just a big fan of Evernote, and, and he's like, "There's actually no software manual for Evernote. Like, you know, Evernote is simple to use. You don't need a software manual for it. But if you want to actually kind of really delve into it, there's some tips and tricks you can learn that will make your experience better." So he created this ebook and he offered it for sale. I forget it was like $24 or something, like pretty low cost. And at the time, you know, he and his family were in some debt. Um, his wife was working this second job. They had two kids, so it was a little bit stressful situation. And he was his goal was like, "Okay, I'm going to make this ebook." If it does $10,000, you know, over the course of a year, then I'll be thrilled, you know, and he took about a month, you know, to write that ebook and to design it super professionally and then to write the copy for it. And so it was about a month long process. And that ebook like super took off. I mean, it did so well. It was like $10,000 within the first few days. Uh, a bunch of big bloggers kind of picked it up and then it just kept selling after that. And it wasn't selling at, you know, this huge level, but it was $300 a day and sometimes $500 a day or a hundred or 200. And so it, all this whole crazy thing ended up happening with him after that. He actually took a job working for Evernote because the CEO, you know, you know, saw it and became a fan. And I think he's actually left Evernote now, but you know, the last I talked to him was maybe a year ago and that ebook is something like $300,000, you know, worth of sales. And this came about because, you know, he identified this gap. He was like, I'm a fan of this software. Millions of other people are using it. I can't be the only person who's looking for more documentation uh, about it. So I'll just create it and, and we'll see what happens. So there's a lot of other people like him, but I think that's a good representative story of, of you know, how people have deployed their skills in the knowledge economy, have taken action, have overcome that resistance, and then seen something really great come about you know, because of it. That's a phenomenal story. And what did he price it at originally? I believe it was $24. I think he's experimented a little bit. I think for a while he dropped it to like 15 and then I think it was like 30 or something. It's always been in this you know, like relatively low range. So not super low cost, like not like a couple bucks, but also not like super expensive. Wow. I mean, that's just the power of distribution. And, and mm -hmm. I think in my opinion, that's, that's one of the most powerful things that we have at our disposal as, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs is that you have this channel that's just as of right now, just free to distribute on mm -hmm. in the internet. Yep. And, and you can get an ebook like that for 24 bucks out there and make $300,000 and say that that's insane. Um, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, the greater point is like not everyone who's listening is going to make $300,000 off an ebook. Like I try to always be clear about that. Right. But I guess the thing is like, it was an experiment and he knew he wasn't going to like lose money on it. Right. I mean, his, his you know, his costs were very, very low. And even if it sells a few number of copies, it can still be empowering. You know, I think it's very empowering to have some income, you know, arrive in your bank account each month that is not from an employer. Even if you're happy working for your employer, I just think it's, I think it's smart. I think it's very empowering and motivational. Yeah. And, and you just said something there that was interesting and, and, uh, about, you know, people mis misconstruing, like, uh, you know, I don't think it's it's not the ebook, right? It's the the fact that he found this this knowledge gap and yep. filled it. That that it could have Absolutely. been anything. It could have been a podcast, video series, uh, yep. whatever it was, whatever platform he had at his disposal. And I think uh, from reading some of the comments too, um, you know, I've I've read some reviews on Amazon of the one hundred dollars startup, and it seems like so many people also misunderstand the point on there as well. Mm -hmm. They're like, you know, this guy thinks that we could just take a hundred dollars. Like it costs much more than that. <laughs> Being an entrepreneur is so much more expensive. Um, and 
and I almost wonder if these people just read the jacket of the book or they actually read these stories because it's not like you're yeah. in there waxing poetic about how you know you can start the the, the business of your dreams for one hundred dollars. So yeah. that's uh, funny. I don't actually read the reviews myself. You know, like I never actually want to even go there. You know, so I guess. Uh, you right, know, here, let's let me go pull back. some up for you. No, I'm kidding. No, no, it's good. Let's go back to where you know. Let's go back to where we started. You know, like I. my message is not about like, Hey, work less, you know, like I actually like work. Like I said, I I feel very fortunate. I can do what I love to do. And you know, that definition of an entrepreneur being, you know, willing to work 24 hours, you know, a day, um, for something that they believe in, I guess the freedom and independence, that's the most important thing. And like, if you are willing to work for it, then, you know, don't take it from me, you know, take it from all these people who've been able to do it in their own way. Sure, and and just to be clear, the the, the reviews are mostly uh, <laughs> astounding. The, you know, the, there's always those few that they that they try to balance it with. Um, exactly, for sure. Yeah, I don't I don't read either the positive or the negative. I think that's best. <laughs> you know, it's like don't believe the good things people say about you or the bad things. Yeah, right. It, 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 there's there, either it'll lead to uh, some sort of plateau where you think you're great, or exactly. you'll think you're crap and you'll never write another book again, and then everybody yep. loses. Um, so I kind of wanted to dig into you know, a little bit of your, of your personal process, because I think entrepreneurs and creatives in general, we're, we're very interested in how we, uh, each other and how, uh, you know, the rest of us are sort of approaching, you know, our craft. So with you, you know, you do a lot of writing, you have the blog, you have your books. And I've read that starting actually in March of 2008, you've tried to follow a practice of writing a thousand words every day. And as a mm-hmm. writer myself, I could tell you that that's not easy. Um, so how does that work out for you? Tell, tell us more about that. How does it work? Yeah. So that's always been my goal, my little matrix of like, okay, you know, I want to be a writer. Um, you know, if you want to be a writer, you just have to start writing essentially. Um, you know, there's not really much of a certification process, you know, for being a writer. Uh, what matters essentially is, is what you're you know, producing and what you're putting out into the world. And, you know, the, the time commitment is also not that, you know, important. Um, you could spend eight hours, you know, struggling with something and not, you know, have anything at the end of the day. Uh, or you could, you know, we all have days where we actually work really well and we're super productive and we actually get a lot done in an hour. So I tried to set this objective standard of, of uh, you know, a thousand words a day, um, every day, six days a week. You know, I take one day off from it. Um, and I don't, I don't always hit like every single, like it hasn't been like a six year or a five year streak or whatever, but I would say it's a general habit. It's like, it's like exercise. If you have an exercise routine and you miss a day of your exercise routine, then you're probably going to be fine. You'll get right back to it. But if you miss like several days, you start feeling bad and you kind of like you, you actually have to take like drastic action to make sure that you get back to, to where you were. Um, so for me, like the streak, you know, the not the streak that's been 100 percent, but the streak that's been pretty consistent. Uh, it just kind of helps me to focus on, you know, what I want to accomplish. And I'm also traveling all the time, as we discussed, like I travel about half the time. I live in Portland, Oregon half the time and I'm on the road all over the world the other half of the time. So that's why the, the matrix helps. It's like, it doesn't matter where I am. It doesn't matter like what's going on. I have to like fulfill this commitment a thousand words a day. And I know if I do it, then I'm going to feel better about myself by the end of the day. So for, for those of us other writers out there, what works for you? Any productivity hacks you can share or, or tools that you use? Like what, uh, what, yeah, I mean, what I guess helps you hit that mark? Pretty basic. I mean, I, I write in Evernote. I could mention that I write uh, in Scrivener. I do use Scrivener for for my books. Um, I write in my great. yeah, yeah, exactly. I write in Microsoft Word or, or Open Office. I mean, a few different things. Uh, sometimes, if it's blog posts, if it's a kind of a shorter post, I might just write directly in, in WordPress. Um, so I don't know. I don't have a lot of hacks. You know, I don't. Um, you know, I'm the kind of person like I'll first thing in the morning I'll check my email. You know, people are always telling you like never check your email first thing in the morning. I, I don't know. I kind of like to know what's going on. So I check my email, you know, but then I, I don't live on it all day. I mean, I try not, I try to be like, okay, I'm checking in on stuff. But then at a certain point, like 
the work day such as it is, is going to begin. And, you know, I have these goals for today. Like right now I'm, I'm writing a book. I, I know that book is going to be about 70,000 words, maybe a little bit more, but 70,000 words, you know, 12 chapters, kind of do the math. I kind of schedule it out and I'm going to get stuck along the way. I'm going to have lots of stuff I have to throw out, but I know that's going to happen. There's nothing I can do about that part. The only element I can control is like every day I have to like make progress toward that initial goal. And if I don't do that, then I won't be able to do anything later. Do you ever, um, do you ever find yourself writing? Cause I, I love handwriting. So I have mm. a bunch of moleskin journals that I carry around oh, great. in my backpack. Do you ever find that that works for you? You know, I started that way. I actually started the, you know, maybe for the first three or four years that I was a so-called professional writer, I actually did write a lot in longhand and then I kind of trans, you know, transcribed it later to a laptop, but something's happened over the past couple of years. And maybe this is a, maybe this is like a bad thing, but you know, I, I guess I do find myself just kind of glued to the screen a lot more. And so pretty much have my laptop with me at all times. And so I would say the majority of my writing now is, is directly to, to laptop. Yeah. It's, it's certainly a time saver. I just feel like when I write it, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm able to distance myself more from it when it's handwritten. It's mm. there's really no explanation for that yeah. whatsoever, but it just it just works for for me. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I'm just able to look at it from an unbiased standpoint. Where as I'm writing, I self edit because I could just uh, hit, I, I could just hit backspace, 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 and it's <laughs> gone. And then I didn't get to see my progress. So Got it's it. uh it's an it's just an interesting thing, uh, interesting thing that works for me sometimes. Cool. Um, how about you? You have your phone close around. Like what what kind of apps are on like your home screen? Because I I really believe that you know you can really tell like a lot about how somebody works by what uh-huh. apps they think are most important and they have like right on their home screen. Cool. Yeah, I got my phone right here. Um, don't use a ton of apps, but uh, maybe in terms of like productivity, the one I actually like a lot is, is OmniFocus. I don't know if you use that or if you use a different one for your no, tasks. I haven't used that, no. Yeah, so I'm a big fan of this. So OmniFocus is like a task management software and so it syncs across all devices. So I have it on my iPad, you know, on my desktop, my laptop, my phone. So anything I input anywhere, it's going to show up somewhere else. And that's how I keep track of like, okay, here's my daily tasks. Here are my projects that I'm working on. Um, so I, I, I do like that quite a bit. Otherwise, I don't really have a lot of like, you know, work stuff. I have my, my Feedly that I, where I read RSS. Um, so it's more stuff that I consume. You know, I have like my New York Times app. I have Spotify. I have Instagram and stuff like that. But that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah, Spotify too just came out with the the running edition. I don't know if you're if you're a oh, big runner or out. I am a runner, but I haven't outdoors. I haven't heard of that. Yeah, it's a new update to the app that I guess uh, huh. if if you if you engage it when you start running, it'll use the motion sensor in the iPhone to track your pace and play music that matches that pace. So that's pretty cool. Wow, that's fun. I haven't tried that. Yeah. So um, and and you mentioned that you're you're working on a book. That's exciting. Can you tell us about that? Is there anything you can tell us? Yeah. No. Sure. So the next book is um, about helping people find the work they were meant to do. You know, like I've noticed in talking with lots of folks that, um, you know, sometimes people feel like they have their dream job and they, if, when people have their dream job, they use the same kind of language, just like entrepreneurs talk about freedom. Um, people who have their day jobs, you know, talk about winning the career lottery. They talk about how they love what they do and it feels like play and they would, you know, they would do this job, you know, without a salary if they, if they had to. Um, and so it's kind of like, how did those people get, how did that come to be? You know, how did they either create those positions for themselves or find that dream job? Obviously some of it had to do with luck probably, but they also had to make some choices along the way. So it's about figuring that out. That's great. And what are you looking at for a time frame for, for a release? Uh, looking at spring 2016. So, um, depending on the time people are listening to this, it's still a little bit of time to go, but uh, shouldn't be too long. And I always do a big tour whenever I have a book. I love to, to meet readers uh, wherever they are. Awesome. That's exciting. 
Well, Chris, I really appreciate the time you took to to come hang out for our listeners. You don't know this, but it's a, it's actually a Saturday, and because Chris <laughs> is so busy traveling all the time, this is this was one of the few slices of time that we can we can get him in for. So, Chris, I really appreciate the time carving out on a Saturday. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming. No, out. absolutely, it was fun to me too, and thank you for taking time on, on Saturday. So, thanks, John. Absolutely, and for all of our listeners, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you share it with your friends, like, subscribe, all those great things, and be sure to come back next time because we're gonna have more great guests. So, so long everybody.